This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Tom Jessup. As president of Fidelity Digital Assets, Tom leads Fidelity's effort to build a crypto custody solution for institutions. During our conversation, we discuss the use of custodians for blockchain assets, trends and client demand, and Tom's perspective as an incumbent attempting to build crypto native capabilities. Please enjoy this conversation with Tom Jessup. So Tom, I thought a really interesting place to start with you is that crypto as an asset class is really unique in the sense that it's self-sovereign, the nature of digital assets. As a starting place, why do we even need a custodian in the first place for an asset class like this? I think there are a couple of answers. I mean, I think that if you start with the through the lens of traditional finance, there are certain entities that require a third-party custodian. So there's effectively segregation of activity, keeping the uh, control of the assets away from the folks that potentially manage them, right? That's why we have custodians in traditional finance. And I think that for the foreseeable future, you will probably still need that segregation of duties as you do today for various types of assets. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is there's also a question of, yes, you can do it yourself, but do you want to do it yourself? As you know, and others that have gotten involved in the digital asset space, it requires a fair bit of foresight, even structuring your own personal custody, thinking about storing things on a ledger or a treasure versus using a third-party custodian. There may be cases where you have to do that because a custodian doesn't support assets or it becomes more of a choice. And I think anyone going into the space has to decide whether they want to take on that, call it operational responsibility, or give it to a third party that has expertise in doing it on their behalf. And so I think that, yes, it is something you can do yourself and you don't necessarily need custody. It's a little bit ironic, I guess, when you talk about self-sovereign assets, but I think there's a reasonable number of folks out there that would choose to effectively buy a managed service. The type of people that are looking to do that, if we look at the traditional custody world, it would be odd at this point for me to own digital stock certificates and say, I feel more comfortable having this in my house than having them at a place like Fidelity. When customers come to you, what are kind of their top reasons for that solution? I think it's a few things. I think once clients understand some of the operational challenges and quite frankly, the risk challenges of self-custodying assets, one of the reasons they come to us is, A, we've been a service provider at institutions for over 50 years as an organization. And so we've taken a lot of our learning providing operational services at scale and other asset classes and have applied that to crypto. We've also been involved in the space for the better part of seven or eight years. So we've developed some crypto native capabilities, which are interesting to clients and I think help address some of their concerns. And that's us managing their assets. But I think most importantly, we give clients tools that allow them to establish segregation of activity on their side. It's not only what we do once we are in possession of their assets and how they're managed. We give the clients tools 
that allow them, for example, to make sure that there's no one single person in their organization that has the ability to initiate and authorize a transaction. So we give the client a set of fine-grained controls that allow them to operationalize this new asset class in the context of how they manage their operations for other parts of their business. I don't know how technical we have to get to understand this part, but I am super interested in what the custodian's actually doing in crypto with the idea that you know there's a private key and a public key and this notion of I self-custody, I'm in charge of this. And that if someone takes my private key, then the money's gone forever. There's no way to revert it. When I'm handing over those assets to a Fidelity Digital, am I getting like a liability insurance protection? Am I getting technology? Where does my private key go and what am I actually accessing? So let me start with what happens to the private key. So we basically, we have what's called an omnibus wallet structure. The way to think about that would be the same way you might think about book entry securities at DTCC. Effectively, everything is being held in an omnibus level and then it's reconciled to the actual books and records of the client. So if we had 100 Bitcoin in custody and 100 clients each owning one Bitcoin, you would see at a books and records level that Eric has one Bitcoin, Tom has one Bitcoin, et cetera. But what we're doing is we're managing that against the key set that we control. You personally do not have a quote-unquote private key that's being custodied at Fidelity. We're doing that on your behalf. And that allows us to do certain things. So for example, we can manage a large percentage of our total assets in cold storage, so which is the most secure type of storage, completely offline. And we manage to an SLA. So if you say, look, I need my assets by close of business today because I need to transfer them out, we manage to that SLA versus saying, hey, Eric, you can keep all of your assets on the hot wallet and move them as and when you want. So we try to mitigate risk by, by providing that layered solution and managing all of these keys on an anonymous basis. So what are we actually doing? Well, clearly we have corresponding public addresses on the blockchain. We're basically reconciling our addresses on the blockchain with what we have in custody, and then we're reconciling what's in custody with books and records. And so there's that general level of assurance that if you gave us a Bitcoin, there's still a Bitcoin in custody. What are some of the other things that we're doing sort of over the top of that? So coming back to security, we think about security in three dimensions. There's obviously what we would call cybersecurity, the technical engineering and the construct of how we keep these keys safe. At the lowest level, we're keeping uh, these keys on dedicated security devices that have never been connected to the internet and are dispersed geographically to ensure that there's a high degree of security at the most basic level, at the cold level. And then what we're doing is we've got various levels of operational controls that we overlay on the top of that in terms of what can people on our side do? What can't they do? How many different approvals are required to move an asset out of cold storage into a hot wallet so that you, the customer, can transfer that somewhere else? That's the second aspect to it. And then obviously there's a high degree of physical security. We're coming back to what I said earlier, the fact that we maintain these keys on these devices in geographically dispersed locations There's a high degree of physical security around securing those locations, tracking who's allowed in and out of those locations, 24-7 monitoring, et cetera. It's what we call a triad approach. It's a multi-layered, highly orchestrated effort. When we share this with clients, going back to your insurance question, look, there's not enough insurance in the world to cover the entire outstanding stock of digital assets. So a big part of what we do in terms of describing our infrastructure, talking about our insurance coverage, and then finally sharing third-party attestations. We've got audits that are done every six months by a big four accounting firm. That together allows clients to get very comfortable with the solution that we are providing. Listening to you, it's so weird. And 
I love the idea of custody, even though it might be a geeky topic, but it reminds me of an old Western bank. The robbers could still come to the bank and get something. And then the most advanced technology at the same time. I think about Fidelity's traditional custody business. There was always cyber risk, and that was a huge threat. But we've gone past the point of robbing the bank to get the assets. If you go into a Fidelity branch, there's no vault. But in this case, you kind of have to balance this physical and digital risk. I just think it's an interesting thing to hear. How do you think about building this business? Which is the more complex part for you to focus on? I think it's the orchestration of all of these different pieces. There's some fairly substantial and unique technology engineering that flows throughout the entire stack, but it's taking those capabilities and then thinking through, okay, as wallet balances grow, how do you continue to sort of horizontally scale this cold storage capability? More and more segregation of assets and activity as asset levels grow. I also think vertically, it's how do you then refine some of the operational procedures? To use the analogy of something's in physical storage and it needs to be taken out of storage and put on a truck somewhere. Think about a, a gold bar in the basement of the Fed downtown New York. There is then all that orchestration of activity and other things that needs to be improved and refined, particularly as clients want faster and faster access to their assets. That actually brings me to my next point about execution services, another part of your business model, which I think is different in the digital custody business, which is if I custody with you and I want to trade at a different venue, there's kind of two choices, I would assume. Either you're connected to that venue or I have to take my assets from you, go to that venue and bring it back. How do you think about the interplay of when you select a custodian, what their execution service options are? I think we see different levels of interest depending on the type of the client. So I would say your more sophisticated trading clients want the ability to have a choice around how they execute, where they execute, who they execute with. And so you tend to see instances where we may be used strictly as a custodian and they are taking assets off platform to trade them. We also have a very large number of clients that like the managed service aspect of what we do, which is to say, you keep your assets at Fidelity, you can trade directly out of cold storage. We have a large and growing number of liquidity providers that we put in competition to fill your order. And so we can give you very strong, tight execution. And you're trading against Fidelity. Your counterparty risk is to Fidelity. And we deal with all of the downstream settlements and other issues, including moving coin to the liquidity provider in the instance of a sale transaction or taking it in from the LP in a buy. And so there are many clients, family offices, registered investment advisors who want that type of single solution provider, single point of market access, as opposed to taking things to their own hands and maybe trading on exchange or trading OTC or doing something else. We intend to grow that part of our business because we're seeing more demand for the managed service solution, right? I have one service provider and they give me everything I need now, obviously, what are the concerns that clients have? Well, am I getting good execution? Is there enough liquidity? And I think over time, we've been able to prove that we can provide those things. So we, we will continue to build out that aspect of our service. But again, recognizing that some larger, maybe more sophisticated trading clients would like more fine-grained control over how and where they execute. Going back to that example of how, from the business model standpoint, you've got two options. You can use Fidelity Digital Assets as a custodian, or you can use it as a full service provider. Your experience in traditional markets, one of the things that's odd to me, but I'd love to get your perspective on either it doesn't make sense or just because it's nascent, is that it would be odd to me that a custodian would own the New York Stock Exchange and do your trading. In traditional finance, there's a lot of fragmentation that the custody business is oligopoly. It does its thing. Exchanges are over here. They're regulated. And then intermediaries and participants interact, but separately and distinct. 
this notion of blending them together, is that just because of how the market structure exists or is your vision that that will change over the long term? I tend to think that the industry developed in a way that was perhaps extremely organic and opportunistic by some of the early players in the space, as opposed to someone looking at what goes on in traditional finance and saying, we have to replicate that. Because you're right, everything is segregated. It's not vertically integrated. Again, case in point, you can choose to keep your assets at Fidelity. You could keep them somewhere else. You can choose where you want to trade. You have people like us providing that quote-unquote brokerage service where we aggregate liquidity for you. That tends to look more like a traditional model. And I think as we see more institutions come into the space, that is their frame of reference. They think it's strange that, okay, if I need a best price experience, there are many people providing this aggregation service. So this is not as much of a concern today as it maybe would have been three years ago. So you mean to tell me if I want to get a best price experience in the absence of Fidelity providing the service for others, I would need to have accounts at multiple exchanges, pre-fund those accounts. If I execute over here at best price at a moment in time, then reallocate my assets that if I see the next trade I want to do, I want to trade on a different exchange. I need to make sure that my, my assets are balanced across these markets. They would say, why isn't there someone that can do that for me? That's what we're trying to do, what others are trying to do, which is sort of disambiguate some of that crypto-specific market structure. Yeah, so just click down on that because I don't think people fully appreciate. If we were setting up a new asset manager today and we wanted to trade on multiple exchanges, talk to me about the type of capital I would need to lock up in order to trade across a multitude of exchanges. The credit intermediation or prime function in crypto is still evolving, right? So putting that to the side for the moment, you would effectively need to pre-fund your accounts at one or more exchanges. So what does that look like? I may need to put, I don't know, $100,000 of Bitcoin in my exchange account and $100,000 in cash or some quantum on both sides in case I want to buy or sell. Because there's no concept of buy now, settle later, as it were. There's a lot of things going on in terms of intermediaries providing prime services. Some of the wallet providers allow you to sort of move assets seamlessly between exchanges. So I think that the market is absolutely addressing this challenge, but it does look very different to a traditional asset manager that says... Why can't I just call up my broker or fire up a screen and trade? Early on, and we'll kind of get to the history of this, there was all this, I don't like crypto, I just like blockchain in the traditional space. And they were talking about settlement periods. And they would say, you know, coming from the fixed income markets, we would do a trade and we would settle three days later, and then we got to two days. And one of the things that was wild about crypto was just instant settlement everywhere. Press the button, there's no breaking a trade. And so I guess just to think about that for a second, when you're providing the full suite of services for someone, how do you think about counterparties facing off, not in this bilateral fashion, but if they have a trade and someone makes a mistake or money goes the wrong way? I feel like constantly in the traditional markets at the end of every day, people are reconciling lots of different moving pieces. What is that like in the crypto space? We settle with our liquidity providers on a regular basis. Again, using a traditional analog, it'd be no different than settling a fixed income or FX transaction with an OTC counterparty. You're doing a counterparty credit analysis both ways. You're agreeing on what is the orchestration of the settlement, who effectively sends their leg first. You're doing that reconciliation. You're maintaining relationships with these folks. And quite honestly, it's not really a big deal. Is there a theoretical chance of sending crypto to the wrong address, et cetera? Not in that type of bilateral relationship because you've got whitelisted addresses and other things that are set up. Having said that, if you think about a client having assets on a platform and sending them off-platform, to your point, unlike a securities transaction or bank wire, those are largely irreversible. So there's a whole set of controls that we employ on our side. And again, we give our clients to make sure that the likelihood of that happening is quite low. 
I think it'd be really interesting now to just take a step back and think about, you know, the size of Fidelity Digital Assets, you coming there, building this organization. How big is Fidelity Digital today? In terms of people, we're probably just passing the 200 mark. I think we started probably about 30. We've seen a tremendous amount of growth. A good part of that growth is building scale into our processes and building out our technical platform primarily. But I think as the space evolves, we see more and more demand from clients to start doing lots of other things. Last year, we put a toe in the water around lending where we act as a tri-party collateral agent for counterparties to a lending transaction. Again, that's an artifact of traditional finance, which is, look, I'm going to enter into some agreement with you, but I want a third party to manage the collateral against a set of rules. So we provide that service and are seeing a lot of interest in that. We continue to add liquidity to our platform. We are in the process of adding a range of other assets to the platform. A lot of our growth as an organization has sort of mirrored the growth and institutional interest in adoption. You know, we also spend a lot of time on education and research. So the resources that are exclusively focused on telling our story and the crypto story to traditional investors, the demand for that type of education and insight is almost insatiable. I think we're still very early in terms of just educating the market. You know, we wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago from a research standpoint, basically said, look, Bitcoin is its own thing, put it over here. And then there's the rest of the digital asset ecosystem. People still conflate what these things are. Do they all compete? Is there a better Bitcoin? Do Bitcoin and ETH compete at some level? And so there's just a huge amount of resource we're putting behind that type of activity. When you were talking about kind of bringing more assets on the platform, how many different assets do you custody today? We are a Bitcoin-only shop right now, but we will be launching ETH and others later this year. And that sort of mirrors you know, what we've seen in the institutional space. Also aligned roughly to sort of where market cap is, all the Bitcoin dominance has come off quite a bit. Bitcoin has been sort of the gateway crypto for most institutions. The thing that captured the most imagination, it allows them to understand what blockchains are, what digital assets are. You know, there's a strong macro narrative around Bitcoin as opposed to other assets, which to me look more like a public venture play in a derivative sense. Our clients were almost exclusively interested in, in Bitcoin, let's say through the early part of last year. But as they start learning more about the space, it follows that the Vista is now wide open. We're excited to, within the right regulatory construct, providing broader access for our clients. I can imagine getting new assets approved as a process, both from a regulatory perspective as well as a technical perspective. Can you walk me through Fidelity's opinion of how you think about adding assets to your custody platform? I can't imagine you're going to go from Bitcoin to a dog coin, but how do you think about what's appropriate assets to custody for this type of client? Yeah, so look, I think it starts with client demand. And obviously, we need to lead our clients a little bit, knowing that their interests are sort of evolving as they become more conversant in the space. I think we do a lot of technical diligence, want to understand how centralized or decentralized is the actual protocol, the actual underlying technology that powers the network. So there's a technical analysis that's done primarily. We have to do an assessment of if we were to operationalize it, what are some things we need to consider, like with ETH going through this upgrade now, which has sort of been happening for the past couple of years, there's always this question, how do you write to something that's still very much evolving and what are the potential issues? If no pun intended, but there's a fork in the road or there's some type of change in what's going on. These are open source protocols. You know, It's not as necessarily deterministic as having a group of developers that work for you build a piece of software. So there's a little bit of that. Quite frankly, then there's the regulatory question. And that's a bit challenging, right? Because the SEC has said that Chairman Gensler said you know, he thinks that many of these things are unregistered securities. 
We do an analysis ourselves to determine what is the potential of that or in our own professional opinion, do we think there's securities? And then we will make decisions off the back of that. It's a thoughtful process. And I think, quite frankly, it's one that our clients want us to apply. When they come to Fidelity, they want the Fidelity point of view. Fidelity serves these clients in many other asset classes. We're known for our rigor around you know, risk management and regulatory compliance and other things. They want to know that we've gone through that analysis on their behalf. On that topic of an unregulated security, just because both of our backgrounds, a topic that swirls around, but I think you're a great person to ask about this. Hypothetically, if I'm at a custodian and I own XYZ coin or whatever it is, and the SEC comes out and determines that is a security, what happens to the custodial provider and what happens to the person who owns it? Depending on, I think, the legal status or the regulatory status of the custodian, it may be the case that the custodian could still continue to custody the token or may not. And that's a fairly granular analysis, I think. I'm not in a position to answer because it does depend on what reg status the custodian currently has. My understanding is that if you were a uh, client and you were transacting in these things and suddenly it was deemed to be an unregistered security, you may have a course of action against your service provider. Again, the service provider themselves may have some come under the auspices of the SEC in terms of penalties or fines or other things. It's probably not the answer you wanted, but it's a fairly complicated set of things that could happen if these were deemed to be securities. Again, depending on the regulatory status of the service provider. And quite frankly, that's part of the analysis that we and others do when thinking about what do we list and when do we list it. What percentage of your time as the head of this business is spent on regulatory? I would say it's gone up dramatically in the past six months. I would say it's probably about 15 to 20% of my time dealing with our you know, government relations team and just the fluidity of you know, new legislation that's being proposed or new things coming out of various departments largely just trying to understand what's in the legislation, whether we like it or not, what are potentially ways to create synergies of other things going on, or where's there potential conflict. And I think at this point, it's a lot of it just trying to understand what's going on and develop a point of view, and then advocating in the right places once we've established that perspective. In your interaction with regulators, it doesn't have to be that specific about which regulator, but are we still in an education phase? Are there strong opinions and people are trying to push different agendas? I know there's been strong feelings, obviously, out of the SEC, but I still feel like we're not totally sure which sheriff is in charge of this market. What do you spend most of your time doing? To be candid, I mean, the amount of legislative activity that's been going on, let's say, over the past six months is probably double what it was in the prior six months. You're starting to see more bipartisan support for crypto legislation in Congress. I think what we saw, you know, going back to the infrastructure bill and that example of how they wanted to characterize certain network participants as, I guess, brokers or intermediaries for purposes of having to track activity. I think going from that perspective, where there was clearly a lack of knowledge or understanding to now and speaking behind closed doors with some of these folks, the level of knowledge is increasing pretty dramatically. But education is still a huge thing that we need to do as an industry. I think the other thing, too, is answering the question, what for? analogy I'll use is that, you know, there's some very good constructive legislation passed around the internet in the late 1990s. I think because most people could say, okay, you know, I'm reading the news on the internet and I can see how this is going to provide some societal benefit or impact my life directly. I think that for many folks, legislators are still trying to figure out what is this going to do for the average person? And so maybe that's why you've seen a lot of interesting dialogue around stablecoins and CBDCs, because it's fairly tangible 
this idea that if you create a new medium for dollars or a new type of tokenized asset, are there things that sort of benefit commerce and society? And that's probably quite tangible to your average legislator or quite frankly, your average person on the street than some of what goes on you know, deep in the far reaches of the cryptosphere. Yeah, I think the regulators would, if they got into some of the chats or telegrams, their minds might explode. ETFs have been, I feel like the traditional finance North Star. Everyone wants to do an ETF. Everyone wants to do a spot ETF. Before we get into just the ETF, you've had some really interesting experience working outside of the United States. And I know you work with regulators all over the globe. I'm curious why we've seen how the Asian markets or European markets have, and even Canada, has taken a different perspective than the United States. And just your feeling from those markets, why some of these type of products are more accepted as they might be right now in the US. I don't think I have a single answer. I mean, I think it's the case that perhaps in certain jurisdictions, a more streamlined or simplified regulatory environment. In other cases where these assets have some legal standing and under the current regulatory framework, and therefore the ability to develop investment product around them is easier. But I think that it's just that the regulations are just a little bit ahead, perhaps, of where we are in the US. And you know, taken to an extreme, you look at, for example, Switzerland, Back in 2017, I think it was, they basically rewrote most of their financial services regulation to accommodate these things called digital assets. So it was sort of like, let's open this thing up. We've got this new technology. How do we modify the existing set of regulations to adapt to this kind of new approach? Whereas I think in the US, just I joke that we're, last time I checked, I think we're regulated by you know, over 50, maybe 55 regulators. We've got state level issues to deal with. CFTC claims you know, certain assets are commodities. You've got SEC. So it's just complicated. And I just think in that perspective, it's been easier to do things outside the US where there's more clarity in certain areas. And it's not to say that we won't get clarity here, but I think the path to that is not fraught with, but will require a lot of engagement by the industry in Washington. But I also think more engagement among the agencies in Washington to figure out how you develop a cohesive regulatory framework for this asset class. Do you think that the SEC for the United States capital markets does become the end regulator for digital assets? Do you think the CFTC or, or we get a new regulator altogether for digital assets in the US? I don't think we have a new regulator from whole cloth. I think that both the SEC and probably the CFTC would make a strong case that given the characteristics of some of these assets and also some of the prudential things that regulators are concerned about, like transparency, investor protection, avoidance of sort of market manipulation and bad actors, I think they would make a strong case to legislators that it can be done within the existing framework. With the caveat that I think it is then incumbent upon us and Washington to really ask the question, okay, if that's the central case assumption, let's make sure we understand why these things are different and why you need a slightly different regulatory approach than just saying, look, they're all securities or a certain market function needs to work a certain way because that may not be possible in a fully distributed open source called blockchain environment. You talked about how over the past six months, it's definitely ramped up for you in this space. I'm curious at your time now running this company, if you look back 18 months, are we in a better place or more adversarial place between the crypto industry and the regulators? I would say we're getting to a better place. If you asked me the question six months ago, I think that there was a lot of negative attention. Not to say that there still isn't. The view I had at the time and I still hold is that I think attention is attention. And if this is the forcing function to bring the industry together with legislators to kind of solve this. I think it's an opportunity for us to kind of solve it the right way. 
I think there are still concerns about the space, things, consumer protection, market manipulation, other things that regulators are concerned about in other asset classes. And I think we'll work through these issues as an industry one by one. I'm hopeful that at least we're talking about it and it's not going away and you're seeing more interest on both sides of the aisle, which again, leads me to believe that we will see some sort of progress. Well, I'm a believer of this is the formation of a new asset class. It does feel like the narratives change week to week. I feel like now where we are in March of 22, we're talking about sanctions on Russia and if crypto is a asset to avoid sanctions. Before it was digital gold, it's for drugs. It's like there's constantly these negative narratives that pop up. I'm curious, where do you think the right role of defending that to the regulators, even explaining something like that is of, okay, Every headline, it does seem like somehow crypto works its way into it. Fidelity would not be in this business unless we were comfortable that there was a way that we could monitor transactions. We could rigorously vet not only clients on our platform, but their activity as part of our overall surveillance approach. And I think we've been doing that for a couple of years. I think we've got some observations about how that's done. We use a lot of sophisticated tools to monitor transactions and activity, as do many other service providers. I think if you look at some of the public data that's been or the reports from some of the forensic firms that watch blockchain activity, you know, the percentage of quote unquote illicit activity versus the total is going down. I don't think you're going to stop bad people from doing bad things. I mean, there's still lots of things happening in the traditional banking system. I think in some ways we have tools to monitor this activity and demonstrate that we are meeting our regulatory obligations. I don't think that the noise goes away and I think it will reach a fever pitch in challenging times like this, but I think the industry is making a huge amount of progress. And again, I think you know the more traditional financial intermediaries get involved in the space, they come from a regulatory first mindset. They're not getting into this game to cut corners or to do things that are inconsistent with the service that they bring to their clients every day. And so I think you will continue to see a hardening of this type of surveillance activity and people taking their regulatory obligations as seriously as they possibly can. I want to switch down to kind of your perspective in your career in finance, moving from traditional to crypto, but staying a traditional firm. I remember Abby first introduced Bitcoin on the website and the mining. And to be honest, being one of the investors, there was a lot of skepticism, including myself. Like, this is embarrassing. What are we doing? We're lending our name to this huge industry. And obviously, that's changed over the years. I'm curious, from your perspective, coming from the outside into an institution of this size, how do you think about trying to innovate and develop an industry moving so rapidly, but balancing that against such a large, formidable service provider? This may sound like an easier answer than you're expecting, but I think it is very much focused on two things. It's obviously having a front seat to the maturation of the industry and some of the emerging theses around this being its own asset class and being able to engage clients and test that. And then the question is, how do you bring that solution to clients? Like, I think we have a very different thing that we're trying to solve than, let's say, your typical startup in the space. We already have a very, very large client base across multiple client segments. And so for us, what we need to figure out is, as the space matures and we understand these narratives a bit better, how can we bring these solutions to our clients in ways that they want to consume them, right? So coming back to the custodial point, I'm sure we have many clients, particularly individuals that are comfortable self-custodying, but the vast majority of our clients view this as any other asset class may want exposure to and want the same set of user experiences and tools that we bring to other assets. And they want those things as part of their digital asset experience. If you're an RAA or family office, you want to see these assets represented in your portfolio view or your risk view, or you may want to research by Fidelity on them or have someone at Fidelity say, look, 
you're getting a little overweight these assets relative to some model, you need to bring that in a bit. So they just thought the broader utility function that we bring applied to this asset class. I think what we're trying to solve for and build is probably different than if it were, let's say, you or I out there trying to do something from scratch. And I think because of that, we tend to think over longer time periods. One interesting thing, we've talked about this before in the past as two people that built companies for Fidelity. One, I built a company inside. Your company is outside of Fidelity in the sense of it was independently structured. You really are a startup in that way. Talk to me about the pros and cons of that structure as it pertains to the space you're operating in. We did that for a couple of reasons. Obviously, one was just focusing on the mission and trying to move quickly. We had to get some regulatory licenses. It was better to do that as in sort of an independent organization. And I think it allows for speed and allows you to recruit people that are crypto first and you have a good sense of kind of what's going on in the ecosystem. And I think that's been beneficial. Now at this point where digital assets are going mainstream, a lot of our focus is, okay, how do we work better with existing business units and some of the things we just mentioned? If you're a registered investment advisor at Fidelity and you have your assets custody with us, you really just want one user experience, right? You don't want to have, okay, well, I'm dealing with this Fidelity business over here, and then there's these digital asset guys over here. So a big part of what we're doing from a product development standpoint is thinking through how do we provide that unified experience? And I think the benefit is because we've had so much of that crypto native experience and sort of we live in the ecosystem, we can be much more effective now as we engage some of the business units and bringing a lot of what we've learned because in some cases, the level of knowledge is quite different. When I think about you guys trying to gain your clients or target clients, do you have your own sales force and you're trying to make connections for Fidelity Digital or is it, I'm an RIA at Fidelity. Oh, do you guys have a digital offering? Go talk to Tom and his team. Yeah, I mean, we're a self-contained business. We've got our own BD team, our own marketing organization. You know, we're largely sourcing clients independent of the rest of the firm, but we increasingly see opportunities to work with folks in, for example, our institutional business where we have an existing client that is interested in digital assets. And so we're starting to see more of that collaborative go-to-market while we still pursue things independently as standalone business. How do you think about the backstop of a company. I had heard someone talk about this with Coinbase, or actually happened with a wormhole hack, sorry. Some of these places that are housing money, especially the ones that are publicly traded, if they got hacked and they didn't plug the hole and backstop those customers, it would kind of be a dead business. And so the capital backing that business is so critical. How relevant is that in choosing across the different custodians? I'll share this point, but just a little bit of history. You know, when we first started in the business, the first question we would get before, hey, how do you do it? Or how do you ensure this is safe? What have you was, how much insurance do you have? And that was sort of the reflex. And even at that time, going back three years, there wasn't enough insurance coverage in the world to cover that standing stock of even Bitcoin. You know, Imagine that all Bitcoin was custodied at a firm like Fidelity. There just wasn't enough insurance to cover that. And I think what we've seen is that our clients have gotten much, much more sophisticated in their understanding of actually how you mitigate risk. So it's not just insurance, it's insurance, it's capital. Who is your regulator? Regulators have different reputations. We're regulated by the New York State Department of Financial Services. Probably the strictest crypto regulation, I can't say on the planet, but it clearly is, I think, a gold standard in terms of what you need to do to regulate it by the the DFS. People look at our operational procedures. They want to understand how we're actually custodying the keys. They rely on third-party attestations. And so it really is this mosaic effect where people look at all of these things and ultimately say, okay, am I willing to take the risk, quote unquote, of working with this provider versus that provider? And I would say that, yes, things like capital and other things are important to clients, but 
there are many other things that are important to them as well. So, Tom, one thing about custody is it's to me, it's the enabling base layer. I know this has been a pretty in-depth discussion about how it all works, but if I want to go build investment products, I need to have my custodian set up. What have you been seeing on the product development side? We do this institutional survey every year. We ask questions about, do you currently own crypto? Will you own crypto? Do you own it directly? What do you think of investment product? And year on year, the interest in investment product has increased quite dramatically. And I think it comes back to something we touched upon earlier, which is, look, I could self-custody but I may choose to use a third-party custodian. And I think the analog here is I could build myself a basket of these things, or I could just buy an investment product that sits in a brokerage account that has a daily nav or some other mark-to-market. And I get that type of integration with my other assets that we've also been talking about thematically through the discussion. One of the things we should see with greater regulatory clarity is kind of an explosion of investment product. Underneath the covers, we're seeing a lot more investors get interested in active managers, different types of strategies, probably less focused on a five-year track record, (laughs) given that very few managers have that, but really more the quality of the managers, their expertise in the space, and how they're going to help the investor get into sort of the Wild West. I think there's also an acknowledgement that it's probably beyond the the ability of any human who's not fully dedicated to this to really understand what's happening. And I think you've realized that personally, having been in traditional finance and now being in this space, I think there are a lot of people that just want experts to tell them, not tell them what to do, but to generate returns on their behalf. I think it's one of the most exciting areas. When Peter Lynch would talk about back when he was an investor and turning over rocks and going to take out files from the Fidelity Library and nobody had ever looked at this company, being in public securities for 16 years, a lot of those rocks have been turned over. In crypto, it's a whole new beach with different objects and foreign things that look alien and lots of scams and fraud. So I definitely would echo that. There's lots of people that want products, but they also want trusted providers. And to your point, to me, that starts with custody that, sure, I could go build a product, but where am I going to build it? Do you feel comfortable with how that is protected every night, no matter how great the potential investment opportunity is? Are you seeing on that side, third parties that want to build on top of Fidelity and say, we want to use you as our dedicated provider? Or how are you thinking about that evolution of product build? Would that be a Fidelity has products and they're trying to integrate you into the existing lineup or crypto native products being built on top? So we currently provide services to a number of crypto fund providers, and we expect that to be an important client segment for us from custody and trading standpoint. I think more broadly, and it's still early days, we do have a small asset management function. You know, We were the applicant for the spot ETF with the SEC. We offer a private fund to our clients. And I think just given Fidelity's pedigree as an asset manager, we endeavor to, to do more in this space. But as you also know, being a Fidelity alum, we're an open architecture business. We want to bring the best exposures to our clients, whether they are Fidelity originated or not. So I think over time, and again, the maturation of the space and regulatory clarity, you'll probably see a range of crypto investment product options, some of which are Fidelity and some of which are not available to our clients, as we do in every other asset class. Maybe just be good to kind of explain the different types of customers you have. Like, what does the target Fidelity client look like? And I'm curious, it might be varied amongst them as you walk through them. Is this an area where people do all that due diligence and they say, we think Fidelity is the best in class for Bitcoin, we're going to use them? Or is this a multi-custodial world where you're like, I want to spread my assets across as many of these providers that I'm comfortable with exist? I think that the single versus multi-custody is largely a function of the size of the client. 
we've seen many what I would call very large clients. These would be you know, crypto native exchanges and others that think about a multi-custody approach or have assets on their own platform and are looking to use the third-party custodian for a portion of those. So we're starting to see that. And I think for the bigger clients, I think you will see a multi-custody model, which again is a something you see in traditional finance as is multi-prime, right? After the 2008 financial crisis, you saw a lot of hedge funds move to more of a multi-prime model. So I think you will see that. Having said that, I think for the smaller clients, these would be, you know, maybe smaller family offices, registered investment advisors. I think they're probably comfortable dealing with a single provider. And the question is more around what sort of functionality or what incremental value you're providing around that solution. So that's why trading is important for us. That's why thinking through other points of integration with other assets they may have at Fidelity is an important thing for us. But I think for the smaller clients, it's really part of the overall relationship and the solution that's provided. To me, every financial product starts and stops with custody. When you're looking at stuff, your perspective on things like getting yield from DeFi, getting exposure to these types of asset classes, are you getting a push from clients into DeFi or is it right now more, you know, we want to see Ethereum or other tokens that we can just hold outright in a safe place? The most sophisticated clients are, are interested in staking and other DeFi opportunities, but I would say that they represent, at least again, for the traditional investors we service, the minority, not the majority. I think that most of our clients, again, we see this very clear progression. And you know this, I mean, having worked at Fidelity and dealing with institutions, they're not like retail investors where they download a wallet and then five minutes later, they're bought $100 worth of Bitcoin. It's, what is this? I need to understand what the technology is. And then they need to say, okay, well, interesting. I have a thesis on these assets, but what is the role in my portfolio? Why am I going to do it? And then once they can convince their investment committee or their partners that it's the good thing to do, then it's like, okay, how do I operationalize that? And so I think what we see is that Bitcoin is the thing that gets them through the call the first set of gates. And then they go back and say, okay, well, oh, ETH is interesting. It's very different. And you think about layer ones. And so that becomes a separate focus. Long story short, I think we're seeing more interest for just support more assets. But then I think that the next step is going to be, okay, these are proof of stake assets. I want to stake them. So we see this logical progression. We always felt that custody was sort of the base of the pyramid. I need to know that my assets are being held securely and they're record kept properly. Access to market liquidity was probably the next layer. And I think we think about that pyramid, let's call it, in terms of what we sort of build next. So if that's the direction the customers are going, what are the biggest gating issues to having Fidelity cover the top 10 digital assets, for example? I mean, to be perfectly candid, it comes back to the client demand, which we're obviously now seeing. And then I think it's really more the legal and regulatory analysis. We have the technical capabilities to do this, but it's making sure that if we do it, we're doing it in the right way and in a regulatory compliant manner. So that's where we're spending a fair bit of time right now. It is on that type of analysis. If you looked out and you said five or 10 years from now, what do you think a custodian looks like? Do you think that a digital asset provider is this integrated one-stop solution? Or do you think that we go back into more of the traditional, highly fragmented world of traditional finance that we started with? I think you will continue to have, again, for very large clients, folks that operate almost exclusively as a custodian. So safekeeping the assets, record keeping the assets, allowing the clients to integrate those assets into sort of the broader portfolio construct. We see that in traditional finance with some of the larger multi-asset custodians that exist. And then I think where it starts to blur the lines is around, you know, again, what is the service or solution offering where custody may be a part? So in the case of Fidelity, where, you know, we are a custodian to a large number of clients and provide lots of other, call it decision support tools and investment product, I think you'll see a number of providers begin to integrate these things into those experiences so that really abstracting away a lot of what goes on in crypto, 
someone yourself who's played around with DeFi and other things, I mean, it is the worst user experience I think ever invented. It's unintelligible. <laughs> Even as a reasonably smart finance and crypto person, you don't always know exactly what you're doing. And I think for all of this to go mainstream, all of those things need to be addressed and need to be contextualized for different client segments. If we do our job, we're not exposing all the blockchain stuff to them. When someone comes to Fidelity to, I don't want to open up a retail brokerage account, they're not asking like, what cloud provider do you use or is my account sitting on a Dell server? They just want a solution and we're responsible for managing the technology. So I think that's philosophically sort of where we're focused. I think you mentioned the story a while back about just getting the Bitcoin private fund on a Fidelity statement. I know how challenging something like that is, but it just seems so obvious that people don't want to look at their assets on one screen, log out, go over somewhere else, just aggregation of assets. So critical, maybe just explain, that seems to me the beginning of you merging into the bigger empire and getting the assets. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, it's early days. I mean, I think first thing is that you know, the broad-based recognition that it is developing into an asset class and there's a lot of demand across client segments and acknowledging where we as Fidelity can play and bring value, which is really that consolidated view of your assets or your clients' assets. And I think that's a fairly easy case to make. And now the question is, you know, sort of how do we do that? I do think that's really interesting to watch too, more of the younger generation is, and this is maybe where there's still an open question about how natively people want to interact with these protocols, whether it's through like a self-custodial wallet or even hands-on DeFi. It will be interesting to see among this younger digitally native generation, how they want to consume financial services in 10 or 20 years. And I don't think we have a clear answer right now, but it's something that while this integration idea is a good one and makes a lot of sense, we still have to think about the next generation of investors, whether individuals or professionals, and how technical they want that experience to be. Sort of like the wave of robo-advisor adoption you know, we saw a couple of years ago versus bricks and mortar advisors. The thing we often think about is what will be an analogous set of crypto natives that as they grow up will want to be served differently by someone like Fidelity or another big financial institution. I couldn't agree more. I remember when you first got into it, just quoting a 24-7 market is an odd thing from a traditional marketplace. Thinking about taking a loan out or trying to get interest on something, the people, especially the younger generation that are interacting with this, are growing up with a whole different perception of what it means to have a financial service provider and what they expect. And so I do think that they will be a really interesting case study for how they push the existing market into the future. That's a good way to phrase it, how they push traditional service providers. Yeah. So this has been a lot of fun, Tom. We try to end every interview with the same question. What are you most excited to see built in the industry over the next six months? And then what are you most excited to see built over the next six years? So next six months, I wouldn't say it's building anything in the industry. I think it would be hopefully uh, some regulatory clarity in the US, even if we don't have a clear set of rules, but just a path towards clarity. There's tremendous demand for these services. There are a lot of folks like Fidelity that want to provide them just more regulatory clarity. Even the roadmap would be super helpful. So that's sort of what I what I hope, quote unquote, to be built over the next six months. Next six years, like it's really interesting. I just think that I would say a maturation of the broader ecosystem. I think what I'm really interested to see is, you know, the use of some of these open source protocols for more wholesale finance. We've got some protocols that are Goldfinch as an example or Centrifuge, where they're raising capital effectively in the crypto sphere, but some of that's going to fund projects in the real world that need capital. And so I think in the abstract, the development of that whole space into a massively scalable open financial architecture that we could use as individuals, but 
also has the heft and fortitude to be used institutionally. I think we haven't begun to scratch the surface of what all of that can be. And I still think it's very early. I'm really excited as well. And it's been really fun getting to know you. We met ironically after I left Fidelity and crashed in this crypto (laughs) space. So this has been a blast and I look forward to continuing to learn from you and your perspective. So thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, my pleasure, Eric. It's a nice conversation. Thanks. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 